Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, owner of Workman Forensics, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Alicia. Before you guys start this week's episode, I just wanted to let you all know that we did record this interview over Skype. That said, there are a couple of hiccups and bumps with the audio, but it is a great interview with wonderful content, so please bear with us and I hope you guys enjoy the show. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. Today I'm joined by Abby Ellen, a former New York Times columnist and author of Duped, Double Lives, False Identities, and The Con Man I Almost Married. Thank you for joining me today, Abby. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so excited. Okay, so when I did some research for this podcast about you and so forth, I saw that you got to name a Ben and Jerry's ice cream. So before we dive into the actual book, I want to know how did you do this and what did you name it? That is all anybody cares about, really. I could like, <laughs> cure cancer and all they want to know about is the Ben and Jerry's. My ice cream flavor is Caramel Sutra and it is on the market and it's been on the market for like 20 years and Basically, I went up there to do a story, and I was interviewing the head flavorologist. That's what he was called. And they said, you can make any flavor you want. And I said, okay, I want to make a burger. I want to call it. And they were like, wow, that's really good. And six months later, they called. They said, okay, we're going to make it. So that's what happened. And I said, well, that's awesome. How much are you going to pay me? And they said, nothing. Oh. <laughs> and I said, okay. But, and I said, but, you know, what about Jerry Garcia and Cherry Garcia? And they were like, yeah, sorry, no, you're not Jerry Garcia. But what they do is they give me free coupons for as, as long as it's on the market. So I get, like, free coupons for the last 20 years. That's so great. So what did you say was in it? The original one that I made had um, Kahlua in it. But this oh. one is, it has this caramel core. You, you, you'll see, I mean, it's it's in the um supermarket. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to look for that on Sunday when we do our shopping. So you've also written the book, Teenage Wasteland, a former fat kid weighs in on living large, losing weight, and how parents can and can't help. And I haven't had the chance to get this book, but I am curious about its origins. Yeah, I wrote that from eating too much uh, Ben and Jerry's. I'm kidding. No, that's a joke. When I was a kid, I went to weight loss camp, and then I worked at them for for like six years. So I wanted to write a book about X Warren. Not the obesity epidemic is what they call it. I, I don't necessarily like to call it that, but I wanted to explore how people lose weight and how they, I was exploring obesity basically. Yeah. And kids and teens and fat camp was a launch pad. It was, it's, it's like duped. I write about these things that are my personal experience. And then I kind of use that as a launch pad to investigate the subject. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And then on the subject of Duped, I mean, what a great title. I heard Kelly Paxton. I think she actually gave away your book at a training. I was like, well, I mean, obviously I have to read it if it's called Duped and about a con man that you almost married. But, you know, I am sad that you had to live it. But at the same time, it really is a fascinating book. And so will you provide our audience with an overview of kind of your story and what launched into this book? Yeah. And, you know, I'll tell you, it, it was a bad experience, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Actually, at least certainly my career. <laughs> I met this guy. I, I had interviewed him for an article. He was a doctor and I interviewed him. A year later, the story didn't run and a year later it did. And so I, you know, called him to fact check and 
he told me he was in the Navy. He had left his wife and his private practice in California, and he was opening up a hospital for kids with cancer in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I said, well, keep me posted because that's a story. I want to know about this. And so he did, and we started talking every so often, but, I mean, very professionally. There was nothing with it, you know. We began talking more and more, and then it became kind of turned romantic. And that was sort of it. And and then we started seeing each other. And within, I don't know, six months, he had proposed. Wow. And by the end of the year, I had left him <laughs> yeah. pretty much. Well, I couldn't believe anything he said. I just couldn't trust him. Right. What a whirlwind. He, would, he told me that he had been a Navy SEAL and that he worked for the CIA. And he told me all this stuff that was like unverifiable. You know, you can't call up the CIA and be like, hey, human resources, do you have this guy in your office? Right. So I had no way to verify this stuff. Yeah, I mean, he told me crazy stuff. He also he told me he met his ex-wife when he rescued her when she was held hostage in Iran. He told me that he was held hostage in China, which is why he had screaming nightmares in the middle of the night. I mean, he like, yeah, it just nothing made sense. And finally, finally, I, I walked out. And it wasn't until a year and a half after that that I got a phone call from the NCIS, which is Naval Criminal Investigative Service. And there was a doctor who wrote, who was working for the government who had been writing prescriptions, forged prescriptions for drugs. And did I know this doctor and did I have a prescription? That was what happened. He ended up going to jail for identity fraud. So he was writing prescriptions under your name and other people's names, right? Yep. People yeah. he worked with the Pentagon and like his head parents and like you know his new girlfriend I mean he was just yeah he just went from place yeah he was just a bad dude he was just a bad and he said that he was an addict and you know I think he was addicted I have no evidence but I also suspect that he was selling I don't know Mm -hmm. for a fact but Mm -hmm. that's what I suspect you mentioned in the first chapter of your book that he had wanted to specialize in the same kind of brain cancer that your grandmother died from. Yeah. And, and then you also mentioned that the two of you appeared to be on the same page about everything like religion, career, money, family. Do you think he studied you before he reached out to you or do you think he just made it up as he went along no. or both? No, the thing is that the th- those things were true. He really did want to be a brain surgeon. I don't think I put it out anywhere that my grandmother... I guess I did. I heard that she had had this glioblastoma, but, but that was in my first book, which I don't think he read. But, you know, he just... Like, I didn't try the woman when he began courting me. I didn't know that. And then he left her to come, you know, and started seeing me. And she had no idea what happened to him. And, you know, I didn't know things like that. I think the problem, what what made him such a liar is that, and this is what makes liars good in general, is that they mix fact and fiction, but they also, you know, have to stick close to some fact. That's what he did. And so that was what was so, he really was a doctor. He really was in private practice. And then he left and he really was in the military. He really was, excuse me, the medical director at Guantanamo for a little while. I mean, he... He really was working at the Pentagon, trying to open up this hospital for kids with cancer. Like, he didn't need to lie. He was mm-hmm. he was cool. When I was reading chapter one, I just kept waiting on, like, this punchline of, like, and he was none of these things. But, like, he really was. He really was. That was what was so maddening about it. He didn't need to lie about this, you know? Right. I mean, those are all very incredible and very interesting things that... 
he was living. In chapter two, you write about how little attention the victims of deception and emotional fraud are given, and even blamed for ignorance. And, and you know, I've worked hundreds of fraud cases and like embezzlement, and people blame my clients as well, the victims of fraud. It makes me wonder how many people are being duped. <laughs> I mean, there's no way to know, but I just keep thinking that even some of those accusers are even being duped in their own lives. They just haven't discovered it yet. I mean, it seems like it's well, that common. It's totally common. But who do, you, who do you work with? What kind of client? Being a fraud examiner, like we work a bunch of embezzlements. In fact, on a podcast from a couple weeks ago, one of my clients shared his story. He talks about how people were telling him, well, you should have done this and you should have done this, you know, but he trusted that the systems he had put in place were working. So then whenever people colluded and just started breaking that trust and lying to him and, you know, I mean, they stole over a million dollars from him. It was just weird because my victims end up getting blamed for not knowing and not doing all these things. Yep. yep. You should have known. You should have seen it. There were red flags. Exactly. Exactly. But I do feel like it's so common that probably even the people accusing are being duped by someone. I mean, I don't think any of us are. So since we do work a lot with white collar criminals and then also like the victims of white collar crime, I found it really interesting that you interviewed and talk about in your book that you interviewed these wives of white collar criminals. And what did you discover? I'd love for you to share with our audience what you discovered whenever you interviewed these women. Well, one that I thought was really interesting was the way that they were being blamed as well. You not know. And also, a lot of them were thought to have colluded with their husbands who were breaking the law. And these women really didn't know. They truly didn't know. Or, you know, but or it's that, that sort of thing, like, I knew, but I didn't know. You know, I didn't want to know. Um, I didn't want to see it. I thought that was really interesting. One woman I talked to, she was responsible. They had divorced, but he and he had stolen all this money, embezzled all this money, and she was liable for it. And she ended up having to go to court to get the law changed because she didn't have the money. And she got right. the law changed. Now no other woman will have to do that in Arizona. What was that these women had the double whammy of their lives fall, falling apart, the public shame, the humiliation, and also the feds or the SEC or whoever was coming after them. So like everybody was coming after them and they had no recourse. And that really, really struck me. Yeah, I've definitely had cases. Well, I would say almost in every case, if there's one person stealing money, and actually I've worked on a case where I worked on behalf of the spouse because the victim of the embezzlement was trying to collect from the spouse. So I've worked kind of both sides. And he was just kind of like, man, I was just living my life. I had my own job. We had separate bank accounts. I mean, I just knew that the company was doing well. I didn't think about the fact that my wife could have been stealing money. But then I've also had cases where that the husband and wife were working together to rip off whoever the other side was. So it's definitely never just a one size fits all type thing. It's not. But again, it was what struck me really, again, is how much the women were held responsible for the men's crimes by everybody. And again, people in the eyes of the world, they want to know how the guy did it. And it's not always a man. You know, there's something called pink collar crime, which is white collar crime. But it's the man, the guy who pulled off the scheme, the Bernie Madoffs, you know, they're like, in a way, it's just like, who are they? Everybody's sort of fascinated by them. What makes them tick? 
How, mm-hmm. how did they do this? But the women are just, you know, the, or the spouses were just like totally victimized. That was why I was so interested in, in writing the book about the victim. You know, how do you rebuild your life after this kind of betrayal? Whether being married to somebody who's a criminal or, you know, somebody who has a double life or is a pathological liar or your colleague at work, you know, is stealing. I mean, there are all sorts of scenarios, the, the, you know, and I don't just talk about romantic fraud at all. We'll be right back to this interview. I'm here with Rachel Organist, who is the lead data analyst at Workman Forensics. She's been instrumental in building the data analysis tools for the Find Money and Divorce program. My first question for you today is, what is Find Money and Divorce? Find Money and Divorce is basically our way of taking the analytical process that we've developed here at Workman through working many divorce cases and converting that process to a format that anyone can use to work through their own divorce. Okay, so how does that work? Essentially what the program is, is a series of webinars, reference materials, and spreadsheets that will help you do the same calculations we do when we're helping our clients sort out their assets. The content is organized into five different modules, but you can mix and match if you only want to use certain parts. So for example, you might just need help getting your documents organized, but you aren't sure you're ready to dive into your financial data, we have a module for that. Or if you'd like to use our data analysis templates, but you think you can follow the included instructions and you don't need the extra step-by-step assistance of a webinar, then that's an option too. Okay, so basically for a user, they don't pay one fee and they have to use everything. They can kind of pick and choose what they need. Exactly. Hmm. So my last question is what can users expect to get from this program? Working through the process will help users feel confident that they've identified marital assets like bank accounts or real estate that they may be entitled to in their divorce. Basically, you're making sure that you aren't out of the loop on potential marital assets or being taken advantage of due to lack of awareness if maybe you haven't been as involved in your marital finances as you'd like. The process will also help you identify what you know and what you don't know so you can discuss any remaining questions with your attorney. And taking the time to be prepared in that way can really help you make the most efficient use of your attorney's time and that can save you on legal costs. Yeah, it definitely sounds a lot cheaper and a lot more useful for a lot of people. Yeah, you'll also have a much better picture of your finances, which a lot of people find really helpful. Of course. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Rachel. My pleasure. Welcome back to the podcast. As a fraud investigator, we talk a lot about rationalization as part of the formula that increases the risk of fraud to a person or to an organization. In chapter eight of your book, I felt like rationalization played a large part of several of those stories, especially the story about Diane and Amanda. And I wondered if you'd talk about that story with our listeners. Well, the story with that was they were roommates. It was not romantic at all. And she, this woman was, her roommate had cancer. And for five years, Diane would take Amanda to Sloan Kettering in Manhattan and help her and, and basically take care of her. And we decided that she didn't have cancer at all. And she had created the whole thing. Was it Munchausen? Maybe. I don't know, though. I don't know if she actually made herself sick. I don't know. You know, it's not a crime. This was over like several years, right? Five years, maybe, is what I remember. Five years. Yeah. And then whenever uh, Diane confronted Amanda, you know, she just said that she got all this attention when she was sick and just kind of kept the ruse up. I just found that fascinating. That seemed to make it okay that she was lying and that she could live with herself in doing that. 
That's exactly right. You know, people rationalize all sorts of things. So, you know, it's very scary what we're capable of. But it's funny because in a way, I become much more lenient in a way about, or I don't want to say forgiving, but it is kind of a forgiving because what I realize is that it's not that people are good or bad. It's that people are people, which means they're a mixture of both. We're complicated and we're capable of all sorts of things. I used to be much, and we're all little, we're all hypocrites in, in our own ways. And, and, you know, I, I I expected people to be kind of one way, and I didn't didn't realize how nuanced everything is. Definitely working in this field and with so many different people, and you know, I even worked some criminal defense cases, and just getting to know the people that are on, you know, they're being charged with something. Um, it's just it's made that bright line between good and bad a lot more gray. <laughs> like it, I don't think it is that bright line. In your book, you do list some, I, I don't want to call them tools, but I couldn't think of any other word when I was prepping for this, that dupers or con artists, some different things that they use to help perpetuate their lies. And, oh yeah, these are just so shocking. Can you talk to our audience about bro some of these? App. Yeah, there's bro app and there's bro app. And there's God, what was the other one? That's right. You, you know, basically they have these apps where you can get, you can get somebody to write a fake resume for you and answer the phone and give you a fake recommendation for a job that you never had. You can get somebody to write you, you know, receipts for hotels that you never went to. If you were conducting an affair, you know, you can get like the sounds of an airplane taking off, you know, you can get the sound of a train taking off if you want to, you know, tell your, your company that you're actually, you know, in Berlin for business when you're around the corner with your mistress. I mean, you know, there's like a million, whatever, there's just many ways to deceive. There's many ways now, there's many ways to get caught also, but I think it's much easier to to perpetuate these kind of ruses. Sometimes whenever we look at fraud schemes, we talk about how much work they were doing to perpetuate the fraud scheme. And if they had put that much effort into their job, like they probably would have advanced, like just try a little bit, you know? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, this careerexcuse.com, I mean, that blew my mind as an employer because I mean, what can you rely upon? Whenever you go to hire someone as an employer, you have to verify. And I talked to a lot of people who've been duped by employees because, and they say, you know, they didn't do their due diligence, but yeah, right. What's the point where you, you know, call up somebody to verify and then they have phone numbers and website mailboxes and you've done your due diligence and it's, <laughs> it's fake. So, right. you know, what do you, what is it fair to do? Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't know. If I were to go really out with somebody, I think I would hire a private eye or like one of those. I mean, they have reference companies that, you know, ones who've been, who are hired to, they, they know exactly what to look for and they could probably tell if something's fake. I, I think if I was an employer, I would do that. I would invest in that. But people lie on their resumes. I mean, somebody from MIT did. It was, I, I don't have my book in front of me, actually, so I don't remember. Um, but it was somebody from uh, one, a big company. Was, I don't know if it was Best Buy or one of the heads had made up where he went to school. I mean, it was just like, you know, this stuff happens all the time. Yeah, I had a case where there was a guy holding himself out to be a professional engineer on a large oil and gas project. And he even went to 
the extreme of having a stamp made with the professional engineering license number on it. I mean, it, it matches the professional engineering stamps in Oklahoma. And whenever you would look up the license number, like to verify the engineering license, that number actually belonged to somebody that had the same last name as him. But he was working on like a multi, you know, I mean, millions, if not billions of dollars uh, project, oil and gas project, and was not a professional engineer. How did you catch him? He was a subcontractor on this project and he kept going over budget. And so the main contractor started questioning him and asking him for invoices. And as they started digging, they wanted me to do a forensic audit. And so as part of that process, we asked for some documentation or something. But in a conversation with him, I said, do you know for sure that he's a licensed engineer and that one question led to discovering that he was actually not. He can't be bonded or anything like that. I mean, because he wasn't a professional engineer. And what's actually kind of sad about that case is that it falls in a gray area where basically he can keep doing it because there was no one to stop him. There wasn't really a right. way to criminally charge him. Yep, yep. As part of your research, you attended a Spy the Lie class. And you mentioned a lot of things in your book that they recommended as far as identifying someone who's lying. And so I'm just curious, are there any techniques that you took away from that training that you decided you were going to implement into your life when you meet people? Yes, I took a spy the lie class. I took a lie detection class taught by these former CIA. It's it's interesting because one of the things that they tell us to look for is when Somebody is saying yes with their mouth, but their head is moving no, or they're saying no, but their head is moving yes. You know, did you steal the money? And they say no, and their head nods yes, you know. So that's something I, I actually look for all the time with people. I also look for when people over explain things. I think a lot of time people over explain things, and that's, that's their way of kind of trying to create a story you know, and they stick really close to the facts. And most people don't do that. Most people kind of jump all over the place. So that's another tell. Um, And you also want to look at clusters of behavior. They say that you want to look at the first, you know, like five seconds that you're talking to somebody. I don't, to know if somebody's lying, you have to get a baseline of who, to see who they are. Um, And you have to know who they are, you know, so that's why it's really hard. So you have to follow people and watch people. But, you know, so scratching your nose or or looking up to the right or the left doesn't mean much. It means much only in the context of other things, with other things going on at the same time that are sort of aberrations. So you have to get a sense of, have a sense of who they are. But I, I use these, but you know what I use a lot in my life is my gut. I, I realized that I have a really good gut. I mean, that's why I left that guy. You know, that's why I ended my relationship because I couldn't verify anything, but I just suspected that something was off. So my, I think following your gut is a big deal. And I think we don't listen to it enough. Yeah. And that, that's something you can't teach either. <laughs> that's right. You can't, you can't, but it's hard, you know, because you, you think, wow, I'm following my gut, but am I being too suspicious? Am I being too cynical? Yeah. I've gotten that. Yeah. I've gotten that a lot in my life because I had always wanted to be an investigator. And I told one of my friends one time, I said, have you ever noticed that our friend has a lot of emergencies and catastrophes in her life? like at least one or two a week, you know? And I said, there's no way that all of these are true. I think she's playing us. 
And my friend said, oh, you just need to stop being so cynical. You know, you just think everybody, well, fast forward a few years, most of them were not true. So. Oh, you were weak. Yeah, I was right. But I didn't yeah. rub it in my friend's face. <laughs> but I do like where you talk about kind of grouping those behavioral characteristics to spot a liar because like the behavioral clusters, yeah. you can't just take one behavior and say, oh, well, this person's lying. I don't know if you saw there was a tweet going around on Twitter about somebody being fired or they weren't being fired, but they were being suspected of fraud because they were driving a beat up car. Have you seen that post? No. It's, it's pretty terrible. But when I read it, my immediate thought was, no, you don't just look at the car. You need to go look at everything. You can't accuse someone of being a risk of fraud because they decided to not spend money on a car. And you also have to look at who they are and what they, again, it's the norm, the baseline norm behavior. Like, did they used to only drive Porsches and now they have a beat up car? Like, what is that about? Right. Yeah. It's the change that I'm always looking for. It's that change in behavior. It's the, like, did something happen that resulted in a pretty significant change? In chapter nine, you talk about the behavioral tests and indicators to spotting a liar. And the whole time I was reading this chapter, I was thinking, or find some data, because that's our specialty. And then you ended up saying the same thing. So what are some of the tangible evidence and, and the proof that you went after when you started investigating the commander? That is a really good question. Well, one thing, I mean, I started calling, I called his ex-wife and I found out that you know, not only had he never been, he'd never been in Iran, he didn't meet her in Iran, he picked her up when they were in medical school together while he was married to someone else. So I began there, you know, and I was talking to her and then she told me that he was engaged to, when he was engaged to me, you know, that he proposed to her and I found out her name and I called her. So I was doing all that kind of verifying. Then I wanted to find out if he was a Navy SEAL and I called up the military about that. And then I found out that he's SEAL. You know, I couldn't verify the CIA, but it's unlikely that he worked for the CIA. Mm -hmm. So when, N when NCIS called me, I asked the agent and, you know, I said, did this guy have any, like, should I be afraid? Did he have any history of being violent or anything like that? And he said, no, no, not at all. There's zero <laughs> evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You talking about the way that you went about finding out this information, you just picked up the phone and started calling people. Can you kind of talk about just being an investigative reporter and how you end up calling people to find out things? Because I work with a team of data analysts and accountants, and I think sometimes we forget that we can also call people and just ask them questions. And the fear on our side is that person's going to tell us you don't need to know. But in your experience, are people willing to, to help and to help you in your investigation whenever you're calling and asking these kinds of questions? A lot of times they do want to talk and they want to unburden themselves. A lot of times they also don't want to, you know, they don't want their names used or anything like that. That's okay. You don't have to, but sometimes they're so angry that they're happy to. So uh -huh. I find, you know, I, I, th I mean, it's worth it to call everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, I just, reading your book, I just thought, man, I need, we need to just call more people in our investigations. What's the worst thing that could happen? They tell us no. <laughs> it would definitely be useful. You kind of touched on it at the beginning, but there's some things that you just think these are common characteristics of a quote unquote good liar. Well, they're charming. They're creative. They're smart. 
They know how to spin a story. People like to be around them, you know, so there's a lot of that. But yeah, they're very smart. They stick close to the truth. Like I said, they mix fact with fiction, but they still stick close to the truth. So instead of telling you they're from, I don't know, like 10 of New Jersey, they'll be from Newark, New Jersey. You know what I mean? I mean, they'll just like steer. So it's close to the truth, but not the truth. So it's easier for them to keep things straight. The reason they're so smart, the really good liars can keep things in their head. They have to remember what they told to whom. Mm-hmm. In the situation with the commander, do you have any idea how many stories he was running in his life at the same time that you were dating and engaged to him? That's a really good question. When I was dating and engaged to him, I, he was courting another woman while we were together. He was also had just left the other woman before me. He was lying to his son. He was lying to his who thought his father was like this war hero. He was lying to his brother. He was lying to all the people he worked with at the Pentagon. He was stealing from them. You know, the, he was lying to pharmacists. He was running a lot because he would go and he would pick up drugs and he would say it was for his patients when, in fact, it was for him. Yeah. Whew. That is a lot to keep up with. Abby, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And to all of our listeners, just a reminder that Abby is the author of Duped, Double Lives, False Identities, and The Con Man I Almost Married. And it's available at any bookstore or online. And Abby, if anyone has a story of maybe being duped or wanted to connect with you, how can they find out more about you? Oh, they can go to my website. It's abbyellen.com. And I'm always looking for stories and not just romantic betrayals at all um i want good scandals and good things to unravel and uncover and you know fraud embezzlement ponzi scheme anything like that so please 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 send my send my way well thank you so much again and it's been wonderful talking with you thank you so much thank you the investigation game podcast is a production of workman forensics for more information about any of the topics that we talk about on the podcast, please visit workmanforensics.com. And to register for our Be a Data Sleuth seminars, visit beadatasleuth.com. You can also connect with us on any of the social media platforms by searching Workman Forensics. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the podcast, please feel free to email us at podcast at workmanforensics.com. Thanks for listening.